Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. There's a movie that's been released. It's called The the 33, I think that's what it's called. It's the story of the Chilean miners. Uh, If you remember that story, there was over a billion people who were tuned in from around the world watching the story. August of 2010, um, in uh, in this Chilean mine in the Atacama Desert, um, there's this horrible mining accident. There's a a huge chunk of this mountain that implodes on these 33 miners. It's a a piece of rock that is uh, 45 stories tall, um, and it sort of just cascades and, and, and breaks through all the passageways um, that are in this mine and traps in tombs these, uh, these 33 miners. Uh, it, it was 17 days before there was any news of, of, of survivors. In fact, the, the moment the, the mine collapsed, family and friends and relatives and co-workers gathered at the accident scene and created sort of this... Uh, this makeshift tent city called Camp Hope, just as hanging on to a thread of hope and hoping that uh, that someone had survived this tragic uh, this tragic mining accident, and so that that was a scene above ground, below ground. It was 17 days before the 33 um, had any inkling that people were attempting to rescue them. Um, so I mean, to kind of think through that. Uh, that, that, that tension on both sides of this, of this particular accident. If you do know the story, you know that, um, that at the day 17, it's August 22nd, 2010, uh, the news was the miners were alive and, uh, and a, a huge rescue effort then was implemented. Uh, the, a, a drill uh, would drill down, uh, down into the, the, the mine area where they were trapped and entombed, these, these 33 miners. Um, they, they were so far below the surface of, of the earth. Um, in fact, they were half a mile down below the ground, which to kind of give you an idea of how far down that is, if you take two Empire State buildings and sort of stack them on top of each other, that's how far down these guys were. Um, and so they drilled down, and after 69 days, in the month of October, uh, the, the, the miners uh, are being rescued, rescued one by one. If you remember the scene, there's this capsule that sort of just one by one uh, takes the miners who are entombed and brings them out, sort of some of a resurrection. Uh, they, they come out, and uh, I got a short little video for you because I want you to sort of capture the moment and see the moment uh, that the first, the first miner comes out and his family uh, is there to embrace him, the emotion wrapped up in that, and then watch what happens in Chile as, uh, as people respond to this news that the miners are being, uh, being rescued. Suena el mundo, 
scene in the streets because you think a soccer game just ended but actually it's just it's lives that have been rescued I mean, you know senseless tragedies sadden us natural disasters grieve us but rescues inspire us rescues do something to our our, our hearts they it just causes this, this release of joy uh to to come out i mean we don't even have to know the people it, it when someone finds themselves in, in a hopeless situation, in fact, it looks like there is very little hope for their survival, and, and, and they do survive, and they're rescued, and especially in a dramatic fashion, there's something that happens within us, something that, within us that rejoices, and it makes complete sense because that feeling, if you can sort of encapsulate that feeling, that's exactly, that's what, exactly what God experiences, I believe. Uh, we're made in his image. I, we have a God who loves to rescue we have a God who, who longs to rescue. In fact, this morning, as we, as we continue in this, in this series, I want to talk to you about a God who, who loves to rescue and longs for us to be rescuers alongside of him. Now, last week, uh, Brian got us going on this with looking at Joseph's first dream, the dream in which uh, he's heard the story from uh, his betrothed, Mary, that, uh, that she's pregnant. He knows that, that, that the, the child is not his, and he's heard the story, he's not buying it, and he's going to quietly divorce Mary, and, um, and then he has a dream. An angel comes to him in the dream and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And, and, and Joseph does take Mary, and, uh, and, and Brian talked to us about how God calls us sometimes to do things that, uh, to, as we obey him, that... that Fear might rise, and this call to be fearless. In fact, we find ourselves in situations where, um, especially difficult situations, where we, we feel like we're alone, and, and, and we hear the message, do not fear, for I am with you. And uh, so this, this first dream is sort of, that Brian talked about, expresses God's heart that we would be fearless, that we would trust him, that we would obey him. And it seems like Joseph has certainly got that message, because in this story that we're about to see, he's going to have another dream, and he's going to obey quickly. And it, 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 I don't know if you've noticed that in the Christmas story, there is one particular story that we'd sort of pass over. Um, this, this particular story that we're about to read from Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, you'll find it on page 1,516 in your pew Bible, if you want to track here in a bit, uh, that this story, in fact, has not inspired, as far as I know, it has not inspired any Christmas music. Uh, this story uh, is not included in Christmas dramas or plays. Um, you, you remember Sesame Street? Uh, you know, and then part of Sesame Street, uh, it says, you know, one of these things is not like the other. You know, they put like, you know, four bananas up or three bananas up and they put up an apple and you, the kids are supposed to help. Which one doesn't fit? Historians have actually looked at this story we're about to read and have come to that conclusion. Some even doubt it's, that it's an actually a true event um, because this, this story just doesn't seem to fit as the Christmas story, as the birth of Christ, uh, is, is the story of the birth of Christ is being told. 
Um, most paintings, as artists have painted the Advent season, uh, this, this part of the story is, is, is skipped. A couple, a couple artists have put brush to canvas to try and depict this scene. Uh, here, here's some of the pictures. You can decide which one doesn't fit. Here's the, the Annunciation painted by Henry Osawa Tanner. This, uh, this moment when Mary hears that she is going to, to be pregnant with the Son of God. Or this next painting, the angels uh, singing uh, over the shepherds and the shepherds caught up in the worship. This painting of the, the three uh, wise men who are bringing their gifts to the king of the Jews in, in worship. And then this next painting, which I'm sure is hanging in your living room. It's called The, the Slaughter of, of the Innocents. Truly, one of these things is not like the other. This, this story just doesn't seem to fit. Yet in it is a dream, and in it is the heart of God revealed and his, his love to be a rescuer. So I want to read for us Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, as we look uh, at, at this dream that Joseph has. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise man's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Joseph and Mary, at this point, have come used to probably waking up in the middle of the night and with, a, with a child that is, is not sleeping through the night. And it seems that Joseph must be getting used to being woken up in the middle of the night by dreams. Uh, this is his second dream. And in this dream, he's given the warning that there is a, a, a king, his name is Herod, who is, who is searching to, to kill Jesus. If you remember the Christmas story, I mean, the wise men are coming and they're, they're following the star and they're, they're looking for the king of the Jews so they might worship him. They go to see Herod and they ask this question to Herod about where is the location of the king of the Jews. And this startles Herod because he is a guy who's pretty protective of his throne. Uh, he will wipe out, he will stomp out any competition uh, for power over Israel. And he's done this quite successfully throughout his life. Uh, he... He's killed his brother-in-law. He's killed his mother-in-law. When he was 41 years old, he even killed his own wife, Miriam, out of fear that she was plotting to take the throne from her husband. Herod, uh, Herod is a brutal dictator. In fact, in 6 BC, um, Herod, he, he thinks that two of his sons are going to, to overthrow his throne. And so he orders the death of two of his sons, which, by the way, were born to him by Miriam, who he killed. Uh, he orders their death, and uh, he orders their death by strangling. 
which Caesar Augustus would later pen, he would say, it's safer to be Herod's pig than it is to be his son. Herod was a brutal dictator. And if you know Herod and you read this story, you, you know that this story actually does fit who he is. Uh, that Herod is a brutal dictator who will wipe out all competition. And so knowing that this is going on, our rescuing God gives Joseph a dream and warns him to flee to Egypt, which, by the way, uh, it, it fulfills a prophecy, uh, warns him to flee, to flee to Egypt. That night, Joseph does flee, and Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus are rescued. They're saved this traumatic event of the murder of, of two-year-old boys in the region in Bethlehem and the region around it. We have a God who loves to rescue. And even as I say that, there's probably a little bit of a tension that's rising in your own heart. Because as we talk about a rescuing God, the reality is that in this story that's, that's called the slaughter of the innocents, that there is indeed a great rescue, but it's right alongside a, a horrible tragedy. I mean, the question should be arising, uh, yeah, Steve, the God loves to rescue, but Jesus was rescued, but all these other families weren't. Why didn't they get a dream? Why didn't Joseph, when he got his dream, why didn't he go door to door and evacuate the entire village? And really, if, if you were to pose that question, I, I really have no answer at all. I don't know. But, but in one way, let me just attempt to answer that question by, by saying this. And I'll just put these words up on the screen. Jesus escaped the first time so that he wouldn't escape the second time so that we would escape for all time. Let me, let me just say that again. Jesus did escape the first time so that he wouldn't escape the second time that we might escape for all time. And even bringing that perspective to this, this story, you know, for a mom or a dad on that first night who are just overcome with grief at the loss of a child, this answer isn't very helpful. Even a week later, it's still not helpful. A year later, it's, it's the senseless tragedy is still what it is. A decade later, it still is a senseless tragedy. It's not until likely 33 years later when there is a man hanging on a cross, a man who was born in Bethlehem, the last baby in that age range, who's hanging on a cross who didn't escape the second time, it is only then that perhaps some perspective is given to this night in which Herod enacts this incredible atrocity. Herod is this, this symbol that of all that is wrong with our world. John chapter 1, verse 11, says that, that he came to what was his own. God, uh, Christ came to his, what was his own. He, cre he created this earth. He created his, us. He, he created human beings. He came to that which was his own, but they did not receive him. And the mistake that we might make in this Christmas story, when we look at a brutal story like this one, 
The slaughter of the innocents is to take the Herods of the world, the Stalins of the world, the Hitlers of, of our world, the, the Bin Ladens of our world, the, the people who, who bomb innocent runners at Boston Marathon, uh, those kind of folks in our world, the, the folks who shoot up Parisian restaurants or concert halls or try to blow up people at soccer games, or even those who, who do take lives of, of those in, in San Bernardino, the, the, the the tendency is, is to take people like that and put them in a special category as sort of these, these overachievers when it comes to evil. They're the monsters. They're the ones who are different than the rest of us. They're the Herods. And the mistake that we discover in the, in, the, in, in, the, in the full story, and it's highlighted in the Christmas story, is that in fact there is not some special category for the super evil. Because Herod is alive and well in all of us. If we had all power, if we had full control, we have the capacity to do the very same thing that Herod did. Now, let me just illustrate this with a story. It's actually a column written by Chuck Colson. Colson has passed away, but in this in this column, he tells a story of a, a guy named Yehiel Denur. Denur was imprisoned in a concentration camp in World War II. And after World War II, at the Nuremberg trials, many of the, uh, the Nazi soldiers, of those who were, uh, who were exterminating Jews, uh, were put on trial. A guy named Adolf Eichmann was the architect of the concentration camp system in the gas chambers. And uh, he was not at the trial. He had escaped. He was hiding somewhere on on earth, and, um, but he was put on trial, and people were brought to the witness stand, and, and in absentia, Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, was convicted of war crimes. Now, in 1961, Israeli special forces tracked down where, uh, where Eichmann was hiding, and they found him in Argentina, and they swept in, and they grabbed him, and they took him back to Israel, and they put him on trial in Jerusalem. In 1961, Eichmann is on trial and witnesses, those who are still alive, are brought before him and they're giving testimony. And Denur, Yehiel Denur, is one of those who is now testifying of Eichmann's crimes. Let me just pick up the, the column here because uh, Colson writes, when he saw Eichmann in the courtroom, Denur began to sob uncontrollably. Soon he fainted and fell to the floor. Why? Was it hatred, fear, horrid memories? Speaking in an interview with Mike Wallace on the show 60 Minutes, Denur explained that during the war, he had feared Eichmann because he saw him as someone fundamentally different than he was. But now, seeing him stripped of all his Nazi glory, Denur saw Eichmann for what he really was, just an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, Denur explained. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. This is why I collapsed on the floor. Mike Wallace summarized the truth in these six terrifying words. Eichmann is in all of us. And let me just say, as we look at the Christmas story, let me just put it this way. Herod is in all of us. You see, uh, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, would write in Romans chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, there is no difference. 
There is no special category. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the angel tells Mary, your son will save his people from their sins. See, we have a God who loves to rescue. We have a God who, who longs to, to save people from their sins. But the reality is, is that oftentimes we don't see the need for saving because we've created a special category for the people who are truly messed up, the people who truly have a problem, and we don't see ourselves being, being associated with the Herods of our world. And so in order to embrace the full rescue that Christ intends for us to experience, we have to understand the depravity of our own hearts and that we have the Herod-like capacity. We have our Herod moments. Some of you maybe had a Herod moment this week. But let me just pause here and just pose this question to us. So put it up on the screen. Do I believe that Herod is in all of us? Do I believe that that sort of wickedness could be expressed by me? The person who would say yes then understands that there is a need for a savior. That this, this, this evil, this, this wickedness separates, separates me and, 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 and my God who's created me. See, the reality is you're Herod, I'm Bin Laden. You're the terrorist. I'm ISIS. We put them all over here. We would never see ourselves doing those kind of things. But the moment we realize that we have that potential is the moment, the moment when we hear that there is a God, a Savior, who will save us from our sins, that that burden can be lifted from us. And when we embrace that gift of salvation that's only available in Jesus Christ, it's at that moment we experience the rescue of our God. He rescues us. And he saves us from our sins. But we have to come to a point where we realize that it isn't grading on a curve when it comes to sin. Sin is alive and well in us, but Jesus is alive and well. He escaped the first time so that he wouldn't escape the second time so that you and I might escape for all time if we receive his generous gift of salvation. And if you have, what, what happens is within you, when you experience, when you know full well that, that you, you have Herod-like capacity and Herod-like potential, and you understand that that wickedness is alive and well in you, it may look differently, it might be expressed differently, but when you acknowledge that, and when you understand that there's a Savior who will, who will save you from your sins, he will forgive you, he will remove all the guilt and shame from your life, what happens when you experience that is this incredible release, this Chilean sort of jubilation in the streets because when you understand what you've been saved from joy erupts from your soul and if it doesn't then well consider the words of Charles Spurgeon a British preacher in the 1800s Spurgeon said uh, he, he said this have you no wish for others to be saved then you're not saved yourself be sure of that See, when you've experienced a dramatic rescue like it's available in Christ, what automatically happens, what tends to happen is, is that once you've experienced that, that release from, uh, from sin, you want others to have that same rescue. Do you think for a moment when that first Chilean miner came out of the shaft that he said, shut it down, let the other stay down there? No, absolutely not. He wanted every one of his buddies 
to experience the same rescue that he was able to, to, to experience. This is the natural thing that happens to us. This is actually God's heart. God longs to rescue. It's his heart to rescue all people. Peter, writing to the early church, tells us that God's heart is that none should perish. The doors are wide open, as Jeff already said, and he's waiting for people to receive that gospel message. God dreams and longs for us to experience a dramatic rescue, and he longs for us to come alongside him and join him as rescuers. And ultimately... This happens through receiving the gift of salvation, yet it's demonstrated in many ways. There's many ways that rescues take place. We, we feed the hungry, that, that's, that's a rescue. We clothe the naked, that's rescue. We provide shelter, that's a rescue. We, we, we pay someone's light bill, that's a rescue. You, you, uh, you, you help support a ministry that, uh, that provides health care, dental care, mental health care to the uninsured, that's, that's rescuing. And there's nothing like the tangible helping people of loving like God. People who love God love like God. I don't know if you know that or not. People who love God love like God. Beware of people who say they love God but do not love like him. There's a disconnect there. But this is the demonstration of the gift of salvation that we have experienced. It happens in very tangible ways. But yet, ultimately, it happens by sharing the good news that there is a God who loves us so much that he would send his son, who would escape the first time but wouldn't escape the second time, that you might escape for all time. His son, Christ, offers the gift of salvation. And I just got to confess to you, I find it much easier to feed the hungry than to tell the gospel message. I find it much easier to, to pay someone's light bill than to open my mouth and tell someone they're Herod in need of a savior. I wouldn't quite word it like that, but I think you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> let, me just, let me just illustrate this from my, my, my own life. You know, people have this view that, <laughs> that pastors got it all together. Talk to my wife. Uh, <laughs> Before Trina and I went to our first church, um, I, you know, I was working at a fishing tackle company in Hood River, Oregon, a company called Lure Jensen, and I, we had a new, new employee. His name, uh, his name was Jason. Jason, I didn't know his full story, but Jason grew up in Chicago, and he got involved as a teenager in, uh, in drugs and then began selling drugs and dealing drugs and actually began, he sort of worked his way up the ladder in that whole world, got involved with the mob. Um, he found himself caught up in this life and he wanted out. And just so you know, that when you want out of, the, of that, whole, that, that whole drug community, it's not like you give a, a two-week notice and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to stop selling, I'm going to stop dealing. And, and um, yeah, you do that and you lose your life. So he knows that his only way out is to go to the cops. So Jason goes to the cops and they discover that the ring that he's a part of is a pretty significant ring. It's connected to the mob in Chicago. And Jason helps... Uh, the FBI and the, and the police set up a sting. And he ends up being responsible for many of his friends being uh, incarcerated, put, it, put in prison, because he, he narks on them. He gets a new identity. Um, he's placed in the witness protection program. And he's taken to a sleepy little town in Oregon called Hood River. And he's given a job at a place called Lure Jensen, this fishing tackle company. And I'm his boss. 
I don't know any of this. I just know I have a new employee. I did notice in his first year of employment that at lunchtime and at break time, he would never leave the building and go outside. Everyone else was outside, but he would be inside. I also noticed that when work was done, that everyone would leave as quick as they could, but he would hang out and hang out for 30 to 40 minutes, and then he would exit the building. I thought that was a little bit odd, but it was fine. About a year after he was employed at Lord Jensen, I was walking the manufacturing floor one morning, and I saw that there were three guys gathered around Jason at his workstation. And, uh, and you know, things were getting, there was some shoving and some words being said. And so I, I walked up, and obviously this is inappropriate in the workplace, and these guys shouldn't be in there. And so I told them to get out, and they wouldn't. So I tried to intimidate them. They weren't very intimidated. I didn't know that they were mobsters. <laughs> uh, <laughs> called the police. The police came, and, and they took off rather quickly. And that day, at the end of work, Jason came to my office, and he was terrified, absolutely terrified. Uh, he knew his life was hanging on the balance. I didn't know his story, and then he told me his story. And I just, I just thought, wow, this guy is carrying such a huge burden, and he needs peace. And I knew that first meeting I had with him that I needed to share Christ with him. Um, and I, he, he needed a God that, that would be there and, and, and be present with him. He needed to know who that God was. And, uh, and for about two months, Jason would come to my office every day after work, and he would process his pain. He would, he would share his anxiety with me, and, um, and I would do my very best to bring some calm to his heart and um, but, I, but I knew that at some point in time, I needed to bring Jesus into the conversation. Yet I was afraid to because I just didn't know what he would think of me. I didn't know if I would shut down conversation. And, and so I didn't. And then one, I, you know, about a month into the, the, the da- daily conversations, he brought up the whole idea of, of a higher power. And I thought, well, you know, maybe this is it. And, and, but I, I beat around the bush. I never... I never laid it out for him and said, yeah, there is a God. And I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't talk about a God who would send his son. And, 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 and not to just, uh, you know, it's not like all our problems are going to go away, but, but someone who would walk with us through our struggles. And, and a God who would give us life and life eternal. Uh, he, and he kept coming back, and, and I kept feeling this, this weight on my own soul to share with him who Jesus who Jesus is. And then one day he came into my office and he had this huge smile on his face. This relief. The burden had lifted. And I said, dude, what, what's going on? He said, I'll tell you later. You're gonna, I, I just want you to know I'm totally good. I'm okay. You don't need to worry about me anymore. And, um, and I said, but that's great. And um, we, you know, he hugged me, and, and we walked out of my office, and we walked down this hallway, and we chatted some more, and he said, you're going to understand. It'll make total sense. I'm going to be good. And he walked out the building, walked across the parking lot. I walked back to my office. He got in his car. He drove home. He got into his garage, and he hung himself. And the next morning, when I came to work, I was told that Jason was dead. And it just crushed me. Here was this young man for two months, a half hour every day in my office. I never told him. Do you know what it's like to take a phone call from someone's mom 
and to have her ask you, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. Did you by chance tell my son anything about Jesus or God? Do you know what it's like to take that phone call where you're sitting on the manufacturing floor surrounded by employees and say, man, I'm sorry I didn't. I was afraid. I don't share that story to somehow guilt us. And I, I don't share the story. And my life has is, is not been lived trying to rectify a mistake. I know I made a mistake. I know and I, I grieve that decision. But this was, an, this was a marker in my life. And, and that here's what I believe. I believe that God, I believe that God has, has positioned people in our lives on purpose so that he might rescue and we might have the joy of being a rescuer alongside of him. I think he has thoroughly thought through who our neighbors are. I think he has given careful thought to who that person is in the cubicle next to us at work. I fully believe that in his sovereignty that he has, he has placed us in the family that we are in. And I think that he gives us opportunities to speak about him. You know, sometimes I, I totally get this because I've been there. It's like, how do, you, how do you do this? You know, one of the most easy ways to engage in this is to simply say to someone, I wish, I'd, I wish I'd, I'd been told this or thought about this, but can I pray for you? Do you know that question, may I pray for you, is actually the lead-in which most of the folks that are saying free clinics which then find themselves giving their lives to Christ. It's just an offer of prayer. Someone's in, in tragedy, someone's dealing with pain, and just an offer of prayer, it opens the doors for conversation. God has, I believe in his sovereignty, has placed people in your life and in mine that he longs to rescue. We have a God who loves to rescue and he longs for us to join him, for us to join him in our rescuing with him. He longs for people to have that burden lifted. In fact, he sent his son. His son escaped the first time so that he wouldn't escape the second time that all people might escape for all time as long as they hear. Someone needs to tell them. So let me just sort of bring this, this whole story, this dream to uh, an, an end here by just bringing it down to earth. And I'll just give you some homework this week. Here's, here's, your, here's your homework this week. Tell the person who told you about Jesus thanks. Would you tell them thanks? Maybe, maybe they're in glory. <laughs> maybe it's telling Jesus thanks for the courage that person had to, to tell you about uh, the Father's Son. But maybe they are still alive. Maybe it's a text. Maybe it's a letter. Maybe it's a phone call and saying thanks. You see, you're in relationship with Jesus because someone told you. So maybe it's just expressing gratitude. Thanks for having the courage to tell me about Jesus. The second thing I would, I would say is, is this. Pray for an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. You see, I, again, I, I believe God has placed people in your life and in mine. And he's, he's empowering you by his spirit to listen to the promptings, to engage in conversation, to speak about the Savior who was born in Bethlehem. 
A savior who, as Mary was told, will save his people from their sins. He saved you. He saved me. And even maybe you're here today and you have not experienced this saving grace that's only available in Christ, even as we continue to worship. You could come to the cross and pound a white ribbon in the cross and just write your name on us. One of the ways we do this around here, just creating this memorable moment. We're saying, you know what? I understand that I've got Herod-like tendencies. There isn't a special category. I know that I am in need of saving as well. Today could be your day where you can embrace the rescue that Christ has made possible for you. Let's just pray about that very thing. So Lord, thank you for the many ways you speak to us. In this story, we're looking at you speaking to Joseph and, um, and rescuing your son. And Lord, thank you. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross that we might experience a grand rescue We were entombed in our sin. And now we have a new life in you. You have saved us. Thank you. Now empower us by your spirit to be a people who take this good news to our world that's filled with bad news. Empower us to take the good news and be courageous as we share about the one who was born in Bethlehem, the one who would save his people from their sins. May your tribe increase as we come alongside and obey. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at SalemAlliance.org.